know me. My name is Parker Lewis. I'm going to be moderating this this panel. Uh, about a week ago, uh, Harry and the Meat Mafia guys um, interviewed me, so now I get to flip it around on him. And Slim and I have sat down. This is my first time to get to to sit down and talk with John. Um, how many of you guys, just to start, have either listened to the Meat Mafia podcast or heard Slim on either his podcast or somebody else's? Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, I was going to start with a softball question um, to Slim, just to de- kind of define, because Slim's really inspired a movement here. Um, I think I first met Slim by hearing him on Marty Ben's podcast and then uh, just started spreading like wildfire. But um, the idea of food intelligence, could you just talk a little bit about just kind of what that means? at a fundamental level, and then, but then how you've extended that out to help inspire people to actually care. Thanks, Parker. Thanks, everybody, for uh, being here. It's always fun to come into the commons in Austin. This has always been my home since I was 19. I left whenever all y'all started showing up. So, <laughs> But anyways, it's good to be here in Austin. Uh, food intelligence, it was about 3 o'clock in the morning. I've been doing this for about three years. And three years ago, I decided to, my family comes from agriculture and ranching, just like Coles, most producers here. We we have an understanding about food that was ingrained in us in a very young age. And one thing it was, it was about proof of work. And I knew that our food systems had become something that had been compromised over a period of time, basically my whole life. I'm Generation X. Uh, I associated a lot of things to childhood whenever we went off the dollar. So I started correlating what had happened to our health in the nation in, ever since we went off the gold standard in 1971. And I, know, I knew how my family had suffered in the agricultural world of the 70s and the 80s. And I started correlating basically our health of its nation with the, the destruction of our, our agriculture that my grandfather knew. So by doing that, I knew that we needed to have a new form of intelligence. So I wrote a hashtag, and it was food intelligence. And from that, basically, I, like I said, I've been doing this for three years. I, whenever I was in Austin, whenever I was younger, I was in big tech. I became a research analyst. And so I have this kind of good skill set that, you know, I don't use Google, but I, I can look and find some information in other places. And once I started doing that, and once I started looking at the decentralization of thought towards food with the help of the Bitcoin ethos, basically, I was able to dive down and create a rabbit hole that knew that basically our food is compromised. And us as a nation, as as individuals, we have the responsibility to basically form a new intelligence that basically is a lifestyle that is very intentional. It's based on truth. Uh, honesty and transparency, and it's based on knowing why do we desire what we desire when it comes to food. And if every one of us in this this room could answer that question right now, this nation wouldn't be so unhealthy. So it's time to dive down. It's time to create a a rabbit hole to understand why we do from a health perspective, as far as a heritage perspective, how do we look at food? So by Knowing what I know about food and the the global corporations that run our access, our market access to food, 
you find out that basically the last thing that comes into the mind of somebody that's designing that food is nutrition. It's based on subsidies, commodities, profit margins, yields. The one thing that they're not thinking about is the health of your children. And they, uh, they've used so many ways to manipulate the understanding of what true food is in this nation to where it's turned into a cartoon world. If you go to the supermarket and you walk those aisles and you see basically the deception of labeling, of the understanding of what true food is, you're going to see that your family, your health, and your children's health have been compromised. And now that 78% of our nation at this point in time is either overweight or they're obese. One out of two is either diabetic or pre-diabetic. Children 5 to 11, ages 5 to 11, 46% of them are now diabetic, obese, or overweight or going in that direction. That's half of our children right now are compromised. And you can look at the statistics and you can argue them, but if you have anything, a percentage of children that are losing their health at the age of 5 and 11, they will never, never, ever achieve health in their lives. We have a nation that is complacent in what we're going to do with food intelligence and with the beef initiative and with Bitcoiners that think differently is that we're basically going to start decentralizing an apparatus that is basically trying to kill us. So it's kind of intense. Uh, it takes a lot of effort to understand it. But if you can focus on one thing, that is food intelligence, then your life will change for the better. So, Slim, you talk a lot about that idea of market access and decentralizing the food supply. And one of the, the other things that you said that I think a lot of people in the Bitcoin community have really latched on to is the idea of uh, shaking your rancher's hand. And I think that, it, I can't remember if it was May or June, we went out to the Rockdale meetup at Riot. I believe Amy had uh, come out and met John, um, who's at Amber Oaks Ranch. I believe it's in Taylor, Texas. And then I think you were going out to, to meet John that same day. But, but creating that direct connection between consumers and ranchers is core to that idea of both decentralizing the food supply and increasing market access. And I think a lot of the things that you talked about, I think, are core to um, the idea of regenerative farming, which I've started to um, learn more and more about. But just that connection to ranchers where I've gotten with Cole, it's the first time I've gotten to sit down with John. John, maybe I, I think probably fewer people in this room are familiar with you. Could you just give an introduction of yourself? Um, I believe you're a first-generation rancher, but, but talk a little bit of just in terms of uh, what made you make that decision to... Um, get into the ranching business and how you think about this idea of market access going direct to consumer and um, and ultimately helping be a part of the solution that that uh, that Slim talks about. Uh, yeah, so so I guess my my journey into food sovereignty really started with personal sovereignty. Um, I, I saw a couple of things happen in my lifetime. Uh, uh, Hurricane Katrina was one. Uh, I was in Bosnia uh, when when that whole thing happened back in the Clinton era. Um, the World Trade Towers collapsing. I was about three hours from New York City. Uh, I started looking around to see uh, and realize that how fragile these systems are that we're so dependent upon and how quickly people can uh, become ugly with one another, right? Uh, so at that point, I was really like, okay, how do I become the master of my own destiny. 
right? How do I start growing my own food? That's the first, you know, one of those uh, um, uh, primal needs. Uh, so we, we just started small, right? We started with rabbits, did some quail, did some chickens, and just kind of scaled up from there. So we had a small, uh, well, first off, I was living in the suburbs outside of Dallas, and I knew I'd get out of there, right? I had some young kids, and that was just not the place to raise your kids, right? Uh, helicopter parents, right? Every moment of their day is programmed. So we, we moved south of Houston. Uh, we got seven acres and just started snowballing from there, right? Started growing my own vegetables, started raising my own food. Um, as a young uh, a parent, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of money. Uh, I love to eat, right? So I just started uh, producing my own food. Then you have, you have these animals, you got to learn to butcher them, right? And so I just started butchering my own. Uh, so when we, when the kids finally graduated high school, um, we moved back to central Texas. I'm from Georgetown originally. Uh, so we went from seven acres to, uh, to 70 acres and we just scaled up from there. I had already made, uh, or I'd realized that a lot of people wanted, uh, what we were doing or wanted to do things that we were doing, right? They wanted to learn. So we started out with an educational focus on teaching people how to become more, uh, self-sufficient. Uh, and uh, from that point, you know, it just it grew from there. Um, uh, so we started selling at the local farmer's market. I'm a big proponent of, uh, of the Agora, if you will, uh, which is really a piece of the Bitcoin puzzle as well. It's like, how do you deal directly with your farmer? How, do you, how does the farmer deal directly with the customer? Um, and so hopefully I answered your question, but that, that's where it all started and, and how it got us here today. Yeah, I think one thing that... Uh, I think one of the, the messages and one of the deep connections that so many Bitcoiners um, have, have connected with around this is there's so many, there's so many similarities or, or consistent themes around the ideas of sovereignty, about decentralizing um, not just your access to money, but then you know, creating greater redundancy and that, that redundancy leads to security at multiple levels. You come into the Bitcoin community recently. Um, but if you could talk about just a little bit of that experience, I, I believe I might be wrong, but I believe that maybe the first connection was Amy who's sitting right over here um, and that you've gotten to meet a lot more people. But were you, were you aware of Bitcoin before yeah. that? Or were you like, because cause it is that, that principle of sovereignty, that principle of freedom and that really de-risking your ability to like, you know, not just go straight to your rancher, but you don't have to go through the financial system. Uh, and one of the most powerful things for me was like I bought stakes from coal with Lightning Network. But I'm just curious, to hear a little bit about your story sure, to Bitcoin. Sure. I, I've actually held Bitcoin since uh, 2014. Oh, awesome. I, I went back and looked and, uh, and uh, yeah, I bought uh, four Bitcoin back then and it was like $600-ish a coin. And of course I sold them all for about 300. Um, <laughs> so, so, uh, so yeah, so I, I've uh, been into Bitcoin for a while. Um, if you guys listen to the Survival Podcast at all, that uh, uh, a redneck hippie duck farmer outside of uh, Fort Worth, uh, turned me on to Bitcoin uh, a long time ago. Also, with that same, you know, I was listening to him uh, and doing doing the same thing around, you know, personal sovereignty, if you will. And Bitcoin was just a piece of that. You can't look at food for the reasons that I was looking at food, right? How do I ensure that my family is fed well uh, and I'm not subject to all of these external forces? without then looking at your money supply and say, asking the same question, or with your health care, right, and asking that same question. Uh, so all of these things dovetail together uh, in, in 
coalesce under personal sovereignty, and, and financial sovereignty is just that one piece of it. So, Harry, you, you have a podcast, yeah. and Meat Mafia focuses a lot about food and the same, very same themes that, that Slim talks about, um, and that you started to engage with the Bitcoin community as well. Um, and I think one of the things that's really important to the Bitcoin community is the podcast medium. I think it's, you know, Twitter's important, but really getting deep with, uh, you know, kind of helping expand people's understanding of, of subjects that uh, are um, sitting right alongside in plain sight. But just talk a little bit about maybe your journey to Bitcoin, but then also the connection in helping to educate your audience or your community about the tie between these two things, about you know, both promoting your health from a food and nutrition perspective, but then also how Bitcoin ties into it. Totally. So I started out, um, got into Bitcoin in March 2020, good time. Uh, I was uh, working a finance job, so finance was my trade, uh, but my real passion was food and fitness and health. So as uh, you know, time wore on during the pandemic, I was thinking more and more about how I can make this connection. Um, clearly, we have problems in the food system. You know, you travel around, you go through the grocery store, you see that most of the food in the grocery store isn't even food. It's just these food-like products. And, um, you know, kind of experiencing COVID, um, you know, virtually, you're, you're living at home, working remotely. Um, just got inspired to do something about it. And I think Brett and myself both um, have had our own health journeys. So mine was not as severe as Brett's. Uh, he cured his autoimmune issues with food. So eating a mostly animal-based diet. Um, I got in great shape and just kind of took control of things that were getting a little bit out of control via working a high-stress corporate job. And um, we both just became inspired with the, the idea of being empowered by the food that you eat. Um, and seeing what other people were struggling with, it seemed like we had kind of seen something that was obvious, but hard for people to actually get a hold of and grasp their attention around. And um, working in finance, I realized, you know, going full down the Bitcoin rabbit hole where the problems really lie. And um, it was important for me, you know, being here tonight is really the perfect crossroads for me of like what I'm most interested in, which is Bitcoin and food and uh, just health in general. And so really just having that background and in, in, uh, getting into Bitcoin kind of spurred like the honest look in the mirror, like, hey, what are you going to do with this passion about food? How are you going to actually use your, your knowledge, your abilities to go do something? And so I had an idea um, in the fall, connected with a guy down here to work on a, a marketplace for uh, farmers to create secondary income sources. Um, they're basically all put their farm stays on one platform. This was the idea, uh, has not has not gotten legs because the meat mafia took off. But um, so we, I had this idea, said, screw it, moved down to Austin, um, started writing for Slim in December because um, I wanted to figure out, you know, I'm, I'm not a rancher. I have a finance background. I've been a collegiate athlete and been involved in the, the health world for a while, um, but I have no clue about this whole ranching side of things. So I figured I would start writing about it and just doing deep research on it. And so I wrote a few articles for Slim. That was kind of the, the light that we needed to get going. And um, we launched the podcast in March and have done just about 100 episodes. 
And it's been amazing coming across all different types of people, healthcare practitioners, doctors, researchers, um, people who have struggled with their health, people who have worked for big food. Um, when all those stories come together, you kind of see how broken the system really is. And uh, you, you really feel empowered to do something about it. Um, you know, like I was saying before, uh, there's 33,000 products in your average grocery store, and those are controlled by 10 companies. So if you're talking about the ethos of Bitcoin, it directly applies to the ethos around health and nutrition. Decentralization uh, is paramount for better health systems that actually work and promote uh, sustainable, well, uh, well-raised food. Someone's talking about nutrition. Most of, the, most of the, the food that we're growing today does not have the same nutrient quality that it had just 50 years ago. Um, so all of, that, all of that ties back into this greater system that we're talking about when it comes to Bitcoin and food. So, so I've got a question that I want to pose to, to the same question or at least with the same theme to have each of you guys speak to. Um, so I think that one of the ideas we've already talked about tonight is, is market access and how Bitcoin being a permissionless censorship resistant form of money that, that you can actually facilitate direct transactions. Not only can you just buy your food direct from a rancher, but you don't have to introduce a financial intermediary in that transaction. And that's really important that the, that centralization of the food supply um, kind of can create a stranglehold, much like centralization of, of the money system, the you know, global monetary system, U.S. financial system all over the world, central banks really create these choke points. Um, there are also incentives and negative incentives in the case of having money that consistently loses its value. Slim, you talk about the idea of proof of work, um, you know, the idea that a rancher's proof of work, there's this idea of proof of work in Bitcoin, which is SHA-256, but that, that everyone's real value and value for value and proof of work, that, that you, can't, you can't fake that. Um, I want to go down the line and just talk about the, the consequences from, a, from an economic incentive perspective of if you have a form of money that consistently loses its value, how that distorts the incentives from the food supply perspective, and how in a sound money world that can help reverse course. The way I looked at it and what I found with our, in our food supplies in the 70s, and everybody talks about, you know, and Harry and Brett are very good about bringing the awareness of seed oils, and that's not hard to be aware of, of seed oils and Bitcoin. But uh, the one thing that you look at our food supply and, you know, you look at incentives, whenever a, a monetary system becomes devalued, everything that it is touching basically becomes devalued at the same time in ways that only the, really the mathematicians know, you know, the guys doing the books. One thing that the food industry did in the United States is we had somebody named Eric Butts went out and told the agricultural world in the United States of America, he's, he goes, you're going to go big or you're going to go home. And whenever he said that, he means you're going to start monocropping, you're going to go fence to fence, and we're going to go feed the world. And so everybody kind of got on to that, you know, that, that, that train and said, yeah, we're America, we're going to go feed the world. But one thing that was going on at that time is that we were commoditizing our food, we were subsidizing our food, we were basically chemical companies were messing with the seed. The source of our seed had changed. By doing that, they started introducing is that what they call now, and they're very proud of it, it's called food science. 
So with food science, what they did is they started injecting basically fake commodities into our food supplies. And they were basically leveraging the, the idea that we were going to feed the world, that we were going to end starvation. But what they were doing is basically they were still getting the same amount of money, cash money out of the consumer, and of course in an inflated way throughout the decades. What they were doing is they were putting, injecting certain types of fake commodities into our food systems that were very cheap. And so as a society, as a country, we made food extremely, extremely cheap, cheaper than any of us really truly know, to where there is absolutely no more value in that food, but their profit margins have always been on a scale that now, on a global scale, they make billions upon billions upon billions of basically your consumption models. And they've done that by injecting fake commodities into our food systems, and they've been able to do it, and they, 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 they basically hide our health. You know, a lot of people don't want to look in the mirror and say we're unhealthy as a nation, but what they've done is everybody thinks it tastes good. And so there's been a, a basically in the beginning, probably wasn't that nefarious, but this point in time is that the, the, the value of the dollar is so debased, we're in such an inflated sequence of events in our societies that they're now about to inject some more fake commodities into our food systems. Everybody sees bugs, everybody sees fake meats, all that kind of stuff, and they're saying, oh, I'm never going to eat that. Well, yes, you are. And they're going to be able to inject that food into your food systems, and you'll never, never even know. You know, basically, they'll be making the billions of dollars on the side because they're going through a global industrial food shift. Whenever you do that, is you have to do it from the ground up. And whenever you redesign a food system from the ground up, you basically stack a new fake value upon the food system. Happened in the 70s, it happened in the 90s, happened a little bit, but in, in 2017 and 2018, they were able to basically do a consolidation globally and they got their marching orders. That's what we're seeing within the food. That's why we're seeing bugs. That's why they're having this climate change narrative that they're shoving down everybody's throat that, that the cow fart or the cow belch is bad for the, the climate. It's been planned. It has no validity. But, of course, they're going to make the general public understand that. That's one way that they can devalue, basically, a food system and they can be, they devalue you, you know, your value within your life and your monetary system. So, John, when you think about your business, so I think that was a great kind of explanation at a system-wide at a system -wide perspective. John, when you think about your own business as an individual rancher, just individual economic decisions, how you think about um, preserving value that you produce and, and, and transact, um, just in a world where it's like, yes, Bitcoin is volatile, but in the old world, knowing that, you're, that every, every good that you produce, every foul, every every cattle had a cattle that you deliver to market um, in a world where money is not engineered to, to lose value, um, but that will store its value over time. If, even if volatile, how does that just change the perspective of when you think about planning or maybe what are the consequences or have been the consequences that you've observed of living in the, in the old world of, of your money constantly being devalued? Yeah, Bitcoin is a is a very small piece of of my business model. Um, so so it's a challenge for me to answer that specifically. Um, but Bitcoin to me personally means that 
okay, the U.S. government can only engage in these global wars because of fiat money. And if I can remove a little bit of that from their coffers to kill other people in other countries, I'm more than happy to take your Bitcoin in exchange for my beef, pork, chicken, or lamb. So in a concise census, that's why I believe that Bitcoin is, is fundamentally important to us as a nation and to the world in general is so that these governments can stop destroying the rest of us. And the only way to do that is to starve the beast. And Bitcoin helps us do that. Starve the beast while you feed the rest of us. So, uh, <laughs> hit him high, hit him low. Um, Harry, can you talk about just you know, kind of your own perspective around kind of the economic incentives of sound money versus the, the consequences of fiat money? Yeah, I, th- I think if you don't have a fair market savings rate, it's impossible to allocate capital appropriately. You can't save for the future. If interest rates are at zero, you have to basically invest your money or you're uh, you know, subject to more money printing. And um, I think it's almost as simple as that. And if you have money that's scarce, uh, you're playing a better game. How do you think that you know, when you apply that to thinking about people's own health decisions as it relates to food and the quality of food, you know, whether it's the, the ability of a producer or someone looking to consume, um, just kind of in, in the people that you've talked to along the way over the last six to 12 months, kind of can you share a perspective there? Yeah, I think, um, you know, a, a, a few people come to mind. Um, we had a, a visit with a rancher out in uh, LaGrange, Texas, and um, we went out there with the idea of talking to them a little bit about um, you know, what, what it might look like to incorporate Bitcoin into their business model. And um, they were interested. And I think that they had basically grown so disenchanted by the system um, and the incentives that were being played out by the big food system, which as Slim was talking about, you know, in the 50s and 60s, the incentive was to ship dollars overseas through corn, soy, and wheat. And uh, essentially, we created a uh, communist scare and uh, used food and food security in developing, developing countries um, as a way to implement the dollar overseas. And so that's kind of the, the first or one of the first dominoes when it comes to incentives, because at that point, we were kind of hooked on this system that was massively fueled by um, an excess amount of ammonia coming out of uh, World War II, which was then funneled into all the synthetic fertilizers, herbicides, pesticides, um, all the things that create the uh, n- lack of nutritious uh, foods. And so, um, you know, that was, that, that was the golden, that was the time period when money broke in, in the 70s and food broke. It, it happened right at the same moment. And it, you know, nefarious or not, or not, whatever you want to, you know, take a stance on. I think that you can clearly look at it and say, you know, there was a global power grab there happening, and now they're just fighting to to keep control. And I think food has been abused because of it. We now have like the least nutritious food possible to feed our kids. So we kind of have talked about the kind of the risks of centralization and then and the benefit of, of that idea of expanding market access, decentralization. Talked a bit about economic incentives. Last thing that I want to talk about, and then we can open up for, 
for questions is uh, nodes. Uh, and this is part of decentralization, but Slim, you talk about, you know, kind of creating a network of nodes. And um, I want to talk about it in the context of, of community because, um, because more and more nodes are popping up, um, nodes in the forms of ranchers, more ranchers whose hands you can go shake, more people distributing education on this important subject, more people educating about Bitcoin. Um, in Bitcoin, I think we, we always say there is no Bitcoin community, but there's a community here. Uh, Cole was talking about the, the importance to his business of, of having kind of come into this community. If you guys could just each talk about the importance of community in your own way, it doesn't have to be in the context of the Bitcoin community, but you know, in the case of John, you're feeding your local community, really decentralizing it. But just talk about the importance of community and how to... Uh, how you think about the importance as well as the mechanisms to to further decentralize, but but to further foster community and how that can really benefit um, the quality of people's food. Whenever I look at nodes, I look at it in a visual way. And whenever we look at food, and Parker's brought up market access, and right now the most important thing that you guys need to really focus on the next, I would say, the next 18 months, it's what is your market access? What does that mean? What is your touch point? What is your direct connection to your food? And not too many people can tell, tell any of us here how many people touch your food from the beginning of it coming through the soil all the way to your plate. How many touch points do you think that that food has? Well, it's many. It's over 20 touch points usually, and it's in a foreign country, and you don't know really where it's come from, especially, you know, when it's beef in the United States. You really don't know where that beef is coming from. So what I wanted to do, you know, we talk about nodes and Bitcoin. We, what we do, and we build, it, we build this one step at a time. You know, this started in Texas, but now the Beef Initiative has a node in Tennessee and Nashville. We have a node in Colorado. We have a node here in Texas. We have a node in the Texas Panhandle. We have another node coming up in Wisconsin. We have another node coming in Oklahoma. We have all these nodes is what we call them, but what they are is your small communities. They're small communities based around one thing, pure animal protein. So whenever you look at your market access to how you're going to live your life, what you really need to focus in is basically is my node, my market access, is it decentralized in a way to where I actually in control of that node. Am I in control of basically my consumption model through that node? Me and, me and Cole, I went up there and I shook his hand and we started talking about what was his market access? What was the consumer demand there? Well, he had to go through all kinds of different Facebook. This is what these guys have to go through. They have to go through Facebook to sell you their product. And the, the type of censorship that you have in the digital world Whenever you're an animal producer that doesn't follow the rules of the chemical companies and the, the you know the the food complex, well, you have so many gateways that you have to go through to try to get to the consumer. Well, within Bitcoin, within the Beef Initiative, within these nodes that we've built, you know exactly. Every one of you right now has a direct contact with Cole Bolton of KNC Cattle. You don't have to discuss anything. You have a node that you've just built in your life that is clean market access. It's a vertical integration back into your food systems. And if you can think of your, your basically your market access to your consumption model, market access to your nutrition, then you've built a node 
and you can decentralize it with communication. You can decentralize it with a payment structure that basically, because Cole was the first American rancher that basically uh, traded beef for his full Bitcoin. And nobody, nobody has to know that. But Cole's ready, he's ready to tell the world that this is it. He has to go talk to other ranchers. He's going to go basically build out nodes with other ranchers. Those ranchers are going to start feeding their communities. We build out locally, we broadcast globally, and we do it by building nodes with these touch points. It's me and it's Cole. It's you and it's Cole. It's you and it's John. That's all you need whenever you're eating your food. Everything else takes care of itself. John, could you talk a little bit about community and just how you think about your own life, business, and supporting that community and how you foster it and um, just how, you know. Yeah, yeah. So as I referenced before, like each one of you is a node in and of yourself, right? You can be anyway. So I may be raising beef, pork, chicken, and lamb, but if you're brewing beer, come to me with a bottle of beer and I'll, and I'll trade you something else, right? If you're, you know, growing mint on your patio, right? Take that mint and make some mint tea and come to me and I'll trade you something for it, right? That's value for value exchange. So, so the relationship one to another, if we can cut out all of that corporate greed and, and manipulation by being our own individual nodes and connecting with one another, then like I said before, we can kind of starve all of that, right? And we can relate one to another. Um, you know, my proof of work, you can come to my ranch and you can see what I'm doing, right? If you like what you see, you can make a purchase or you could trade something. Uh, and this is the way this country used to function, right? There was a general store and they, they may have used um, uh, the fiat currency of the day, but people knew who was there and where the product came from. And, and that was just a, a, a marketplace for people to gather. And I'd like to see it go back to that, right? And Bitcoin is a piece of that. Whether we use that as that, that uh, denomination at which we agree to, you know, exchange things with one another, um, then I think that's the right choice. But if you come to me with something that you produced and I find value in it and you find value in what I'm doing, let's, let's do business together, right? That's, that's the way we cr create community. Oh, and I'd also like to say that there is a mafia in the farmer's markets, right? You can't get access if you're not politically aligned with those things that, you know, that they believe in, okay? So I got shut out of the Mueller market probably because I thought COVID was BS, right? And, and they saw that. Here, here. So, so you're still dealing with a mafia when you're dealing with, with uh, in those, um, those venues. Not all of them, mind you, right? But the individual producer there... That's who you want to do business with. And, and, and so with, with gatherings like this, we can cut that out as well. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll do the uh, Mueller market one better. We'll, we'll bring the whole Bitcoin community straight to, to you. Um, <laughs> Harry? Yeah, I mean, community is uh, paramount to what we're doing with the Meat Mafia. Uh, it's virtual, but these in-person events are so cool. Uh, first time we really had to do an in-person event was the Beef Initiative event. Um, out in Crawford, Colorado, and got to meet people who've been listening to the podcast and engaged with our material. Um, and what we're all about is education and action. And we've had more people come up to us and say, hey, I've lost 10, 20, 30 pounds. Uh, Ron was just telling me about his health journey where he lost a bunch of weight and cured some autoimmune issues um, based on some of the recommendation and education that we've been putting out there. So 
Um, you know, virtually it's challenging to create community, but I think when you can connect it with that in person and, uh, you know, share ideas in person and meals in person and uh, just get people, you know, more excited about what we're talking about and the mission that we're trying to push forward, uh, it makes all the difference. And yeah, I, I think that the Bitcoin community in Austin is one of the most special ones out there. Um, and so it's a pleasure to just be a part of it and be able to contribute in any way that we can. Yeah, and I think that that idea of being in person, going to Crawford, I experienced it in Kerrville. I encourage anyone um, who can go to the, the White Oak Pastures in a couple of weeks here. Uh, the beef initiative being in person, the thing that I recognized was that Slim made this comment that was any, everyone that is here is, is, had to be very intentional about getting here. Uh, and, and that speaks to those events, but it also speaks to these events. Being in person matters because um, it does foster community. And I think I'll come back to something that I said at the beginning and we'll open it up to a couple of questions. Like John's up here, come shake his hand because the only way, and this is something I've gained an appreciation for since, since I've known Slim, it's a really obvious thing, but you don't, you can't really know where your food's coming from unless you're getting it directly from the source and, uh, and supporting guys like John and guys like Cole that, that are supporting our local community is really important. And then what you do is, you don't just go up and shake your rancher's hand. You go on Twitter and tell people to shake their rancher's hand because two things will happen. More Bitcoiners will actually move to Austin because they'll get super FOMO'd about the <laughs> fact that we're all shaking our rancher's hands. Uh, but then they will also be inspired locally to do the same. So um, it's a gift that keeps on giving. Shake your rancher's hand, buy beef directly from them, and, and then go tell the world about it um, because it does inspire people to do the same. So with that, uh, maybe take a few questions. It is getting late, but we can answer a couple questions and then uh, break and people can hang out here. Any questions? About the farmer's market and how that works. Uh, yeah. Question about the farmer's market. Um, yeah, so, so they're not all of the same, right? So my wife runs a farmer's market in Taylor. Um, so, so I, I, the ones in Austin, though, are, are very um, controlled, right? It's a very high access fee for the farmers to come out and sell. Uh, it's hard for a farmer to break in uh, to that market uh, unless, unless there's something, you know, totally unique that... Uh, so, so if you're a beef producer, there's already like six beef producers in there. You're not going to get into that market to sell beef, pork, chicken, lamb, any of that, okay? Uh, but... <clears throat> uh, you know, and that's, that's fine for the ones that are already there and they have a lock on that market, right? So they have a first mover advantage. I'll give them that, but we got to create markets elsewhere so that uh, the rest of the folks can, can get access, direct access to, uh, to their rancher. Uh, and besides there's, there's more than just Austin, right? There's more than just Mueller. There's hundreds of communities in and around Austin that are food deserts, Right. And so I'm a proponent of farmers markets, but uh, decentralized farmers markets, if you will. I'm right here. So curious about what you speaking with ranchers and trying to grow your message and your brand, what have you. What's the receptivity that you receive, and maybe some of the challenges you get into of talking to who has been in the system, been cycle washed multiple times through the process, they don't know any different. And it's just like orange pilling someone 
the first time I tried, I know I failed, probably a lot of people here, but over time you kind of learn that messaging. What's the messaging you're using to get through to those folks? And how is that being received in general? Is it slow growth or starting to see a lot of people, ranchers who are buying into it or? Yeah, and I think that's one of the best questions because whenever I got into this, I, I remembered, you know, growing up with the ranchers that I grew up with. And one thing you don't do is you don't step up on a rancher and start asking them about damn Bitcoin. <laughs> you know, and it's, you know, we're not used car salesmen, right? And how I was raised, my core belief system and everything is you walk up and you shake their damn hands. And you basically look at them in the eyes and you ask, you ask them, it says, why do you do what you do? Why are you uh, out here every day? Why do you work 20 hours a week? Would you educate me? Where do you come from? Where do your grandparents come from? How did you get here? And once you, you, you finally get them talking because you want to know about who they are and why they do what they do, and you're not trying to sell them something, you're going to find out that most ranchers, especially in the regenerative world, people like John, people like Cole, people like Jason Rigg, people like Justin, all the ranchers that have come into the Beef Initiative, what they are is they're educators. They want to educate you. That's their passion. And so once you allow them to start educating you, then they basically begin to respect you and they begin to trust you. And then you basically buy their product. And you don't even bring up Bitcoin. Then you take their product home because basically they did proof of work. It was a value for value exchange. Then you go back and you talk to them again. And you start asking them, hey, what are your pain points, you know, as far as being a producer or a rancher or a grass farmer? What are you seeing out there? You know where that conversation goes to over a period of time? It goes straight into Bitcoin. And so once it's in that basically state of mind in both of you guys, then you can represent Bitcoin in the way that it deserves to be represented. And you can respect the rancher producer because basically all they do every day of their life is battle deceptions, corruptions, volatility, and we're not going to go up there and sell them something. We're going to ask them to sell us something. That way we can do a value-for-value value exchange that's based on a peer-to-peer -peer transactional system that is decentralized and nobody can tell us. Once we can say that equally, like I said it with Cole, which John's people have said, AK-47, Amy said it with John, people across this nation are starting to understand that ranchers are already Bitcoiners. We just got to have the right conversation with them in the beginning. Cool. So uh, my question is about regulation. So I know Congressman Thomas Massey has been talking about kind of regulation around meat products for quite a while, but can't even get it like a hearing on the floor of Congress for it. So I'm curious, how does regulation and where we stand, whether it's limiting or not, how does it affect you guys? And like, where do you guys see maybe challenges in what you'd like to do versus what you legally can do without any, you know, black SUVs coming your way? Right. <laughs> the biggest thing that nobody understands, and it takes a long time to truly understand what is the true problem when it comes to agriculture, when it comes to ranching, comes, you know, food in general. It's basically, it's because we have no market access. We have regulatory capture at this point in time in the United States where four global processing centers process 80% of our animal protein in this nation. Those corporations aren't United States corporations. A lot of them are out of country, but I'll use an example because it's JBS. JBS has basically 
um, captured our processing, our packing, our distribution, and they control the market access to our food. And, and when you talk about regulations, well, that's where a lot of the de Department of Justice should be basically so far up the ass of JBC, JB, JBS at this time, but they haven't been and they won't do it. Why are they not doing it? Well, because they don't have to, because our consumer demand allows them to keep on bringing that corruption and that regulatory capture. Massey, what he's trying to do, he's, he's doing a very broad stroke. But how you change regulatory capture is exactly what you just heard Cole Bolton say tonight. He had opened up his own processing center. That way we circumvent around the regulatory capture we basically learn the law better than the law knows itself when it comes to processing, and that's what Cole has done. That's what Justin up in the panhandle has done. And we're going to start moving forward to where we circumvent around the regulatory capture. We use the state laws and the federal laws, and we basically educate them as they basically, um, let's say, regulate us. And it, it's been a long haul to get there, but I think in, in, in the state of Texas, the Beef Initiative is basically moving forward with the Association Council. And you know, it's people like Cole Bolton, Justin, as I said, Panhandle Meats. We've all gotten together. Cole knows some people in, in state legislation. He knows people in the agricultural world in, in, in the state of Texas and the United States. We've been invited to go to the U.S. Cattlemen's Association Convention in Nashville in December. So we're getting some attention. And it's coming from a vertical integration that we are basically decentralizing that market access through the processing centers. It's not going to be done on the federal level like Massey's trying to do. It doesn't have to be. You know the law like we know the law now. We know the regulatory capture, what it is. We're like I said, we're going to circumvent around it. And it's not on this massive scale. You have all this, this media that comes out and saying, $600 million processing plant that's owned by the producers. That's just a distraction. That's just the news. What you need to be paying attention to is that we're moving forward and there's going to be a microprocessing center in every county across the state of Texas. It's how it used to be, as John said. This is how our grandparents lived. We don't have to ask for permission. We understand. We have the rubber stamp now. Cole, you heard him say that he got inspected today and he passed that inspection that is probably the biggest achievement in his life, but he's not going to tell you that. So everybody stand up and give Cole Bolton a standing ovation because he's basically getting around the regulatory capture. Cole. Something about a Texas cowboy, he's, he's very humble, but, you know, get him talking and he'll talk. I'd like to bring your attention to a couple organizations that are helping us on that front. There's a Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance and Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund. I would highly advise you all to check out both of those. You can actually contribute. So they do lobbying, if you will, with the, with primarily with the Texas legislature, but also nationally for small-scale producers like myself. Right? And so if you can help them, help me, that'd be a great thing. Uh, also, um, cut, yeah, Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance and Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund. They're, they're somewhat, they're not partnered together, but they, uh, they go hand in hand. Um, Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance is the lobby arm. Uh, the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund helps um, protect small producers from, you know, corporate 
uh, or I should say governmental uh, overreach. Uh, and so they'll, they'll come out to my place and, and if there's an inspector hassling me or whatever, they kind of got my back, right? Uh, so you can help in that respect. Um, I would also, if you see anything, uh, uh, country of origin labeling uh, initiatives going on, call your local congressman, senator. That is the crookedest thing out there, right? And so uh, I'll let Slim elaborate on it, but it can say made in the U.S. of A., but it ain't. All right. With that, um, let's give these guys a hand. Thank you each. Harry, John, Slim for coming out. Um, yeah, seriously, shake your rancher's hand. Um, it makes a difference. Cole, John, um, Cole's KNC Cattle on Twitter, at KNC Cattle. John's at Amber Oaks Ranch. Amber Oaks Ranch. At Amber Oaks Ranch. We know the beef, at Beef Initiative, Meat Mafia. Um, yeah, get engaged. Pay attention. Um, source your beef locally and uh, hang out and have a good time tonight. Seriously, while you're here, shake these guys' hands because... Uh, they're doing important work. So, thanks, guys. Thank